0: Good day. This is the 77th edition of Free City Radio. I'm your host in Montreal, Stefan Christoph. Thank you so much for being with us. On the program today, I am going to be speaking with Robert Vitalis, um, who is an author and a professor. His latest book is called "Oil Craft: The Myth of Scarcity and Security That Haunt U.S. Energy Policy." This book really deconstructs and looks at the ways that um, narratives around oil scarcity have shaped violent U.S. foreign policy and also the political landscape and imaginary of social movements uh, responding to U.S. imperial policy in Iraq uh, in relation to Saudi Arabia. The framework and the focus of the book is to really sort of Work to understand that oil is not at the center of U.S. policy. This is the, well, one of the main points that Vitalis puts forward. I think it's an important book in terms of deconstructing narratives around uh, oil being the primary interest. Um, the placement in this case is focused much more on deconstructing U.S. imperial power. And um, it looks at the ways that policy uh, is, is justified or shaped by this uh, sort of obsessive idea of oil scarcity as opposed to an actual critique and conversation about the nature of U.S. foreign policy um, and a critique and opposition to uh, the neocolonial imperial nature of U.S. policy uh, internationally. Um, I'll leave uh, the conversation to speak for itself. There's a lot of um, really thoughtful reflections that we hear from Robert Vitalis, um, and here's our exchange.
1: Uh, Let me try to do this succinctly, and let's work with the title, Oilcraft. I ultimately explained the title in the conclusion of the book because my editor and publisher said, I can't start my own book with an homage to another book, especially one that is published by a, uh, a competing press. <laughs> it's something like that, you know? So in the end of the book, I explain where the title comes from, which is it's a riff on a idea by a sociologist and historian, Barbara and Karen Fields. They, they, they are sisters and scholars and they wrote a book called Racecraft. What they're so struck by is the notion that, you know, our ideas of race, and I've got a quotation mark around that, have no scientific validity, right? And it's really a matter of racism. That's the term they would want to use. But we constantly reproduce these false beliefs about race or bring them back in, even though we know that it, the race doesn't exist. And they sort of said, that's like witchcraft, right? Smart people believed in witches, Francis Bacon, etc. But And we know, no, oh, they don't exist, right? And so if witches don't exist, all you had was all this evidence accumulating, right? As if witches were around, but you could never actually find the witches. Well, for me ultimately, that it's when I read Racecraft that I realized, aha, this is what I've been searching for in thinking through or in in deconstructing or challenging my own ideas and the ideas of my comrades and fellow scholars in Middle East studies. About what role oil plays in 20th century and 21st century history, geopolitics, and so forth, because virtually none of the claims that people make about oil seem to hold up empirically, right? So that's one one thing. And then the second thing I realized is just a lot of stuff people believe that we know are not true, but they reproduce the ideas in part because you know this oil has this hold over, over them, right? So my main example of that would be, you know, this idea that something called OPEC in 1973 boycotted the West, the United States, the world, et cetera. We see that claim made day you know, day in, day out, up until today, when factually it's incorrect, right? And in, in what I've discovered are there are lots of these factually incorrect beliefs that people hold dearly, in part because they're so convinced that Uh, So much of politics revolves around um, the struggle for resources, a phrase that you will continue to read, you know, in the newspapers today. They're going to talk about lithium uh, these days, whether, you know, and they're talking about oil, the new geopolitics, fracking, the geopolitics now that we're, you know, uh, going off oil, all these things. Right. There are these deeply held beliefs as part of that discussion uh, that turn out not to be true.
0: Well, and in terms of the details within your book around OPEC, um, and also structures and mythologies that are boosted around the concept of scarcity, you know, going back to the origin point of the colonial dynamics around oil uh, in Iran, for example, with the Anglo-Iranian oil company, a huge effort was made also at various stages uh, in the first wave of development of oil production in Iraq to actually hold back and create sort of market mechanisms around scarcity. Um, So it seems that in these two cases, it was political decision-making and economic decision-making by human beings that were driving the process, not the oil.
1: Uh, Yes, I, I would say that on the point you're wanting to make. Let's just take Iraq for a second. When, you know, the consortium is, is, uh, you know, exploring and then producing oil in Iraq, you reproduce an argument that Tim Mitchell develops in uh, his book, Carbon Democracy, that sort of says, you know, the firms, right? The firms that controlled production of oil in the Middle East and elsewhere in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, 50s on through the 70s, these firms had an interest not in producing as much oil as they could from you know, these various Middle East producing wells, but actually creating a sense of scarcity, right? And that would be the way to uh, ensure profit, right? So you know, they were roughly like a cartel, a complex cartel that had power for a certain amount of time, but that they, they gradually lost that, that power. Um, so we know what the firms were trying to do, right? Now the political, you know, side of the equation, like what are the statesmen, and they were all men at the time, the presidents, FDR, Churchill, whoever you want, you know, whoever you want to think about, what were they trying to do? Well, their arguments were all about uh, the strategic need, right, the strategic need uh, for, here, if you're Franklin Roosevelt, you're saying the strategic need for America, to control this oil. And if you're Winston Churchill or his followers, you're talking about the strategic need of Great Britain to control the oil and so forth. Well, it turns out there's this, uh, an illusion there going on. This assumption that firms, right, are Tantamount to the countries, you know, in which they, the firm's principals operate and in, in the stock markets that the firm's shares are being sold at. And what I, what I discovered, and it's not that I discovered it, people recognize this back in the 1920s and were revealing this, is that that's this great fiction. OK, you know, so when if the United States says we need if a statesman says we need to control the oil of Saudi Arabia, what they meant. In the 1930s or 40s was American firms will be producing that oil under this, and I think this is true, this like kind of false belief that if it's an American firm producing the oil that somehow translates into enhanced national security for the United States and or, you know, enhanced well-being for their citizens, and so forth. That was true about Great Britain, but it turns out that was true about the way folks talked about all sorts of natural resources in the early part of the 20th century. Because, of course, when we think about colonialism, we're, we're not simply talking about Oil. Oil was like a kind of late entry into the resources that were being extracted from various colonial territories, right? There's rubber and cotton and copper and so forth. Well, there's this fiction that if the firm's principles have passports that say Great Britain that somehow benefits Great Britain, and we know, right, and if we just step back and think about it, is that a firm's identity carried no particular kind of uh, security premium for the citizens, let, you know, and the elites of the, their country. Why? Because all these firms were selling the oil on world market. I mean, in peacetime, all the firms are selling the oil all around the world. So a U.S. firm producing oil in Saudi Arabia is not necessarily uh, delivering that oil to refineries in the United States. Right in peacetime and in wartime, right? You know the the kind of exceptional circumstance or the circumstance at the at, at the margins that make the exception. In wartime, there's no guarantee of ever getting that oil or any other resource to market uh, because of the you know because of the accidents of geopolitics. So in the classic case, after World War One, Great Britain, France, Germany, all the great powers thought we need to go all out in order to maximize our own country's national champions' ability to kind of own oil wells, produce oil, right, and ship it. And so Great Britain makes a big effort after World War I and many books are written about this, about how British state and its allied firms were going to seek oil concessions everywhere. And that somehow was going to solve the problem of Great Britain's security if another uh, war broke out. Well, what we know after 30 years of Great Britain doing so, when World War II comes around, they are still dependent on the United States for all their oil resources because the oil they controlled in the Middle East that the firms controlled could not get to market, you know, because of the conflict itself. So this national security rationale for championing your own uh, uh, national champions, your firms, there's one of two things we have to conclude: the states' people are either, you know, not thinking rationally about these things, right, and/or it's uh um they do understand the situation and then they don't care, and in fact something else is going on. You know, this is has always been a left uh, leftist analysis. It secretly the firms are controlling the the process, et cetera, and the state is simply doing what they're. You know what their firms want, I've not been able to solve which of those two things are true. I just know that it's true that the production of oil by the united by United States private firms uh, guaranteed nothing for the United States during time of conflict and during peacetime, all it guaranteed was remarkable profits for the firms themselves, but nothing about enhancing security and so forth
0: um so maybe can you just talk a little bit about why it was important for you to deconstruct in the left, the ways that that mythology is repeated. Um, and and in, in the book you talk about um, for example, code pink, you talk about you know, people who've done like a lot of really important uh, activism to critique imperialism and, and militarized violence but you tried to deconstruct or decouple that work from this narrative. Why was that important? And please share any points on this.
1: Sure. So the answer is the juxtaposition of two things about my life. One is that as wearing my academic hat in my scholarly books, it turns out that what I've done in at it, it, different moments uh, in the study of Egypt in the 1980s and into the 90s and the study of Saudi Arabia into the 1990s and 2000s is deconstruct myths that have been created about both those places at different moments by different forces. For Egypt, it was roughly arguments on the left about dependency, imperialism, comprador, businessmen versus national businessmen and so forth. And I've demonstrated that when you read, when you read the archival record, you see that virtually, you know, uh, uh, the the mainsprings of left accounts of imperialism and dependency in a particular place didn't actually hold. So, So as a scholar that is what I had been doing. Now now, the second uh, uh, strand is that I was, I'm also, an, I was also an activist, I'm not as strong an activist as you, right? Or, you know, professors do this, once they have tenure, they go, my activism is, you know, uh, limited to giving talks during anti-war marches and so forth. And for me, I was really struck during the 2003 invasion of Iraq by the United States by how many claims about what that war, about what was driving the war, uh, and on the left, it was always the control, it was something about oil, uh, how those claims either could, could not be verified empirically, meaning no one had any evidence for the claims they were making, and or uh, the claims made no sense. So, and, and I gave anti-war talks. Uh, in the run-up to the war, where I was sort of saying, you know, we could be against this war, but if you're telling me it's about oil, this makes no sense. And of course, uh, uh, explanation number one for left anti-imperialists, right, in any war, in any conflict, is it's really being driven by the needs of the big firms or big oil, you know, and so I can show you many, many documents that said Big Oil was behind the oil, the war in Iraq, and somehow they wanted to they wanted to get access to the oil and so forth, et cetera. You know, when you I would talk to oil consultants and uh, principals of firms, and the big oil companies were totally against this war. It made no sense. It made no sense to them because what it was going to do was disrupt markets that they were interested in, you know, seeing peaceful relations, you know, see, seeing that the continued without interruption, et cetera. So, so, in in the course of giving anti-war talks and listening to other people's anti-war talks, folks were making, were claiming things that were either 30 or 40 years out of date, uh, wrong in other ways. And maybe this is an issue that you struggle with, or maybe you could, you know, maybe you have a position on this. The argument becomes that as a scholar, right? So it's a moment. It's a moment of you. You're trying to organize or mobilize uh, against, you know, a war machine that's moving forward. Is that the time? The you know, friends of mine would say that you want to draw out the complexities in 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 matters or kind of raise questions about, you know, the truth claims that nonetheless are being used to mobilize people, no war for oil, you know, and so forth. And ultimately I came down on the grounds that no, I can't, I, I'm not really comfortable making claims that are not true simply as an expedient or because I care about you know, uh, uh, opposition to the war and I remain you know, uh, an, uh, an opponent of that war and uh, an opponent of, you know, U.S. Uh, imperialism or interventionism in the Middle East generally in the past 20 years or so. Uh, but I don't think oil, it can explain very much about these uh, uh, conflicts.
0: Well, in a, in a way, it seems like maybe that argument is an out. It's a shortcut. And maybe, yeah. you know, in, in that sense, it feels really important. Because politically, in the long term, in terms of accountability, right, if in fact a war is caused simply by the interests of mysterious forces of oil corporations which we can't see, then what are the mechanisms of accountability right
1: mm-hmm. and in the
0: long term, how do you actually build a response in a in a sense in the sense of social movements in the sense of legal challenges, uh, you know, attempts through international law. I mean, that's another whole discussion about how effective that is, but at least there's a process and, you know, uh, different actors can be critiqued through that mm-hmm. process at times, whether or not there's actual final accountability. Mm-hmm. That's another discussion. However, my, my question is just about, yeah, maybe underlining that point because it seems that, just saying that the Iraq war is for oil or that the intervention in Libya was, you know, because of Gaddafi's policy vis-a-vis oil exports to sub-Saharan Africa, um, that these policies actually, in fact, are more nefarious Mm -hmm. (laughs) and are about imperialism Mm -hmm. and that, that there needs to be an actual Deconstruction of mythologies around exceptionalism of the United States in that case.
1: Okay, yeah. I mean, this book has gestated for a very, very long time. I think I gave some of the first talks about some of our ideas about oil, maybe you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then you know, uh, started to work on this book seriously a, uh, a few years after, you know, in 2016, 2017, 2018. So one of the things I discovered, right, uh, in in like reading various things, is you know, John Hobson, the journalist from 1902, who cited all the time for the for his book on imperialism. It's a big thick book that I think most folks don't read anymore. What they usually say is John Hobson, the journalist, uh, anti-boer war activist, and so forth. Uh, is the source for Lenin's ideas about the economic taproot of imperialism. And that's all we kind of read Hobson for at this point, because we run on with Lenin and then whatever our genealogies of imperialism theory is after that. Well, Hobson's book is divided into two sections, the economic, you know, logic of imperialism, and he sort of says the political logic of imperialism. And in one of the early passages that, that I'm struck by is Hobson says something like this, it would be wrong to assume that statesmen are making some claim about what their, you know, imperialism is about and uh, 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 keeping others hidden and or are, are aware of their own inconsistencies, right? So those are the two kinds of claims that we see reproduced until this day. Noam Chomsky does this all the time. Right. Uh, if 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 George Bush says this is a war for democracy in Iraq and a lefty turns around and says, well, wait a minute, you can't you don't really care about democracy because otherwise you'd be invading Saudi Arabia. That was, you know, that was as as undemocratic as Iraq. That somehow is supposed to kind of ex- expose Bush's ideas as false in some sense. Right. And that opens the door. So when you have these false ideas or, you know, ideational, you know, or ideological claims about a war and that you expose them as false, well, then something else must be going on. And you know Chomsky, is, and God bless him, I love that man. But Chomsky is classic for you know if he finds some statement somewhere in an archive in 1946 that says oil is the secret power that the West needs to control you know against the Russians, well that's t- true until today, etc. So so if if the arguments are inconsistent, then there must be something else really going on or driving this process. Plus. Plus, a classic imperialist theory always believes that economic interests or, you know, societal interests, economic interests of uh, firms, sectors drive much of, you know, at the action day to day in a state and so forth. Well, you know, I think we can I, I think we can trust the leaders of states, when they when they say this stuff that they're doing, that they believe it, right? And they're unaware of the inconsistency or it doesn't matter. So I think Bush, you know, pursued that war for precisely the reasons he said, uh, even if somehow it doesn't fit or if it's not consistent with the, you know, with the full force of U.S. foreign policy across 30 or 40 years, et cetera. You know, I, I think the... I, I think folks come to believe these things. And, co- and what Hobson says is cognitive dissonance is very hard uh, for people to hold on to and, and act. But I think we tend to assume that uh leaders, elites, et cetera, are lying or do have secret you know, reasons that we're not we're not aware of, et cetera. And oil now, especially in the Middle East, if you just think about it, it's in you know, it, you don't have to work very hard to say Middle East and oil, there's your explanation, right? And really all my book does is say, okay, how is it? You know, how is it that the oil is the, is, is the factor? And as I try to work through the various forms of arguments there, um, I find that they make no sense, right? And so, and so really uh, uh, what I think is you know, people want to know, wanted me to talk to them about, well, well, what is the state really doing or what is U.S. foreign policy really about? And I sort of said, you know, that's not what I was trying to explain in this book. And I don't, you know, I guess I could venture a guess. But what I do care about, what I do know is that intellectuals, I think, you yeah, I think we can trust intellectuals to be telling the truth when they make the claims that they do, whether it's Noam Chomsky or uh, the head of Code Pink, Medea Benjamin, or, who, you know, or whoever, or uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, or Samuel Huntington, etc. And we can assume they believe these things. And I, and I can kind of demonstrate, I think, fairly accurately, that what they believe makes no sense, right? And so what I think activists should be doing is instead of kind of parodying the argument, they should be uh, if if they hear, you know, if they hear a national security official make a claim about, here, well, this is the standard one that national security officials now make, and in their ventriloquists and people who are close to state power. They usually say something like this now. Oil is not as important to the United States anymore because we have fracking. So, yes, we may, you know, reconsider our interventionist posture in the Middle East, Right and that's that's an intellectual making a claim that claim makes no sense for the for the for the following because it assumes right that somehow it was it was the oil that somehow there, the relationship is something like this that the oil is flowing directly from the Middle East to the United States uh, as my students themselves would say well why else would we why else would we be in the Middle East if we weren't getting that oil ourselves but what we know is that Middle East oil is flowing on the world it remains so today so even if we're not you know, and here's the key thing even if we're not importing as much Middle East oil you know at any moment, the price of oil, there's two things. The price of oil is going to, is dependent on the world market, right? We are not insulated from price shocks uh, simply because we're importing 11% of our oil from Saudi Arabia rather than 13%. Though people often exaggerate, you know, how much oil was ever coming into the United States or to the refineries at some time from the Middle East. So in some sense, uh, the notion that, uh, we don't have to worry about the Middle East right because we are importing this oil makes no sense uh, 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 e- economically uh, because of the, because of the nature of world oil markets and, and that's not a defense of interventionism all right like keep the military there because I think the military does nothing for this you know the, su- the supply of oil so President Obama or you know, uh, President Trump never talked about this stuff, save to say that you know we should have captured it in Iraq. President Biden's not been saying much, but Obama used to talk all the time about the need, you know, to secure the continuous flow of oil from the Middle East, and that's in part why the U.S. has to maintain this relationship with Saudi Arabia and so forth. Well, I you know I don't think we need military. No one ever would explain precisely how the military of military presence in the Middle East guarantees or makes more oil available at lower prices than otherwise, right? The left turns around and says, "Uh aha, actually what that military is doing is controlling oil, right? And, And you know, and you would turn to the left, to a leftist intellectual at that point and sort of say, precisely how is it controlling it? What does that mean? And you'll find that, you know, roughly, like if I could do a survey, right, 85% of folks would not really have a good answer for that, or they would have like totally kooky answers, like Americans forced the Saudis to sell oil at a certain price, which, you know, is, is not true. And then there's like a kind of more sophisticated leftist version that goes something like this. The, the military in the Persian Gulf, controls oil in the following way. By being there, it stops any kind of would-be ally or adversary from doing anything that we'd be grumpy about, because we ourselves can then turn around and stop the flow of oil to that ally, right? And, you know, I read this, You you can go to the London Review of Books, and this argument is made, uh, by a journalist n- named uh, Tom Stevenson basically and and you could turn around and ask this question so how do you know that that's empirically true right? because i I can think of many things that 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 would be German allies, Japanese allies, European allies in general across the course of the Cold War did that made you know the us national security state or Americans grumpy, but we never you know, we never we never use this so-called oil weapon to stop them from doing something. So it's like this assumption that's never tested, right? It never worked through logically, but is just believed. And you know, I don't believe it. I, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, thanks for breaking that down. What in which ways does that critical approach do you feel strengthen? critiques, actual critiques of imperialism. And I guess what I mean by that is it seems, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that in a way, one of the ideas um, is to sort of deconstruct mythologies around also the solidity of US power and the influence of oil corporations. Uh And in that deconstruction, I feel that that actually gives space for, for these systems to not be mythologies and to just be named in simple terms. Um, yeah,
1: that's a good, you know, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I actually think what, what, you know, I follow Pankaj Mishra on this a little bit, not that he writes about oil and stuff, but he does write about, you know, hegemony, global power, et cetera. It seems to me, right, that we exaggerate the, the strength The resilience, the capacity of the United States to do all these things, when actually, what we should be doing, I mean, and turning around and sort of seeing right at the end of these 20 years of endless wars with, you know, China is now a larger economy and so forth. The notion that somehow America exercises global hegemony through its, you know, uh, through its uh, controls over the levers of power, oil, and so forth, um, I, I think is a fiction. And I think one can challenge, you know, imperialist the, 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 the interventionist project much more powerfully, right? Because here's, the, you know, here's, here's another part of it. Uh, back in 2003, in the run-up to war, right, with Iraq, um, and we on the left held up the signs, no war for oil. But you know, there were plenty of people who sort of said, oh, no, wharf oil would be a good thing if, if it means our way of life, et cetera, right? So people actually believe that there's some strategic interest in the United States exercising power over these places because of the resources. Well, we can start to disabuse them of that. I think it's really important to do that. Uh, that, that uh, your lifestyle is not threatened. I mean, we just see all this kind of craziness going on right now uh, around the price of oil, right? First, the exaggerated abilities of OPEC or OPEC plus Russia to control the price of this particular resource. And this, and this dumb idea that President Biden has to uh, 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 release oil from the uh, strategic uh, um, uh, stocks right the strategic reserves because that is going to do nothing to reduce the price of oil over the over the you know medium term it might it's going to have an effect for a week right but it does not solve the the globe's problems and instead it it uh it misleads people, basically. Uh, misleads consumers. It misleads voters. But and you could see why President Biden is doing it to, like, you know, like reduce the, you know, he's already got these terrible uh, 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 ratings, or right, and he he doesn't want to see his ratings slip any further. And people are grumpy about prices. And you know, I just heard someone say on the on the newscast, oil is the best indicator of the of the uh uh uh, a phenomenon in of inflation you know more than any other commodity and it just it makes absolutely no sense that oil itself is it yes you know how much you're paying for oil at any or gasoline at any particular moment and that might have this psychological effect but uh, uh plenty of commodities are our prices and services are rising much faster than oils, but we don't know that because we never compare or think about oil prices relative you know to the prices of all other commodities you know on the markets these days so there's a lot of like kind of you know again like a smoke screen and carry and 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 uh, invoking of uh, uh, false ideas about security et cetera um as a political expedient, but um, it—I it, think we'd be much better off uh, 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 demythologizing these things and calling imperialism for what it is. The United States acted abroad in, in after the Cold War, roughly because it could. And it felt like it should, or it had this like idea. Of, I mean, had this idea about what a what a superpower should do. Plus, it was drunk with ideas that it was going to be able to kind of champion, change the world, et cetera. We re, we rejected those understandings of the U.S. effort, and instead talked about you know the firms and the material bases, the arms sales, the the weapons manufacturers, et cetera. And I I think we confuse co- cause and effect there a
0: lot. So bringing oil off the pedestal, bringing the corporations off the pedestal, um, what then should be, people be focusing on?
1: Uh, well, we sh- we, we, what we ought to be doing is, I mean, firms matter, and we ought to be studying them more carefully than we do, right? I think, I think uh, 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 we have stereotypes and caricatures and made-up shit uh, uh in place of what we need is real knowledge about about uh uh our, our, the ec- econo- economics et cetera i mean the whole notion of big oil right is a notion that's you know fifty years old in some it's not a good characterization of uh of the nature of world oil markets uh at the present time and and who's operating there i, I mean you know, there's a, I guess I would put it this way there's a lot of lost knowledge uh, on the part of the left. So when I started uh, uh, studying firms, multinational corporations, we used to call them in the in the 1980s, there was this great institution called the United Nations uh, Center for Transnational Corporations. And it was these lefties who had this office in the UN and that were studying the operations of all sorts of sectors, businesses, pharmaceutical industries, auto industries, and so forth. Right, and, and that was for the purposes of, you know, kind of reining these firms in, controlling them and so forth. And I don't think, you know, I don't find the equivalent uh, anymore. There were a few there were a few activists like my favorite work uh, from the 2003 era and I think I have some references to it in my book where there were these activists in the Netherlands who actually bothered to study how the Iraqi oil industry worked right they were called the platform collective and uh, and they themselves right you know they were issuing these reports in 2004 2005 sort of saying hey no you know you this idea here 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 was the main idea, that, that when the United States intervened as a consequence, right, big, big American big oil firms were gonna come in to control uh, the oil resources of Iraq. And I think people think that's true, that that's what's going on today. And the platform collective uh, said, that's nuts because you don't understand uh, the long history of the Iraqi oil industry and the Iraqi technocrats, right, who have great sense about uh, oil, and why expect that, Iraq, that Iraqis after 2003 would give over, right, resources or rents or provide more advantage to these firms than any other set of state elites in any other part of the world oil economy, you know, controlled by now You know, state-owned oil companies in the third in what we used to call the third world, and they were absolutely right. You know, if you were if there was a 26-year-old hanging out in the green zone, you know, with this idea that he's gonna we're gonna privatize the, the Iraqi oil industry, well, those ideas were thrown out the window within weeks. And, and, you know, Iraqi labor unions, Iraqi technocrats, you know, started up, they did exactly what we would expect them to do, is to preserve the interests of the state-owned uh, 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 firms at that moment and cut the same kind of deals that, that uh, other technocrats were cut, cutting elsewhere. But that's the reality that we needed to know about. But instead, we're getting stories about, you know, big oils coming in. They're going to take this over. The Western oil firms want Iraq because, you know, X or Y or Z. And folks wrote those things in journals like Merip and and gave speeches about it. But they, but they had literally no evidence for this. It was simply what they believed based on what they understood of, about the world 40 years earlier than, than, than that.
0: I really appreciate that point. And maybe a last uh, question that comes to my mind is, sort of, it seems that the point here is about agency. Um, Because if you think about the discussions that did happen under the coalition provisional authority in Iraq around privatization, there were some suggestions early on uh, by younger officials, absolutely. (laughs) Um, around pushing privatization. But the agency point is like the Basra oil workers and all these organi- this organizing happened um, that actually confronted that idea and it was successful, right? Mm-hmm. And thinking yep. now about the climate crisis um, and the point of connection is just around the idea of agency, right? Like sometimes I think that there's a narrative around the war or the climate crisis today that these are sort of like, that protesting is so important, but that there's this mystery around these processes, and that mm-hmm. we don't actually have tangible agency as alternative forces to actually challenge these mechanisms that are occurring. And it seems to me, oilcraft, one of the ideas is to deconstruct those mechanisms and highlight the falsities of these narratives, which seems very important today, like in the Canadian context, right? Like you know, if you want to deconstruct, it's not simply that, you know, TC Energy is building a pipeline on Wet'suwet'en land. Well, what is TC Energy? Who invests in mm-hmm. TC Energy? Exactly. Yeah. The process, right? McGill University has endowments in TC Energy. Okay, so it's, and the protest or the opposition then becomes much more tangible. So it, it, there's not this mystery, which is like what I really appreciated about your book in terms of thinking about resources. I
1: I would encourage people to do that kind of work for sure. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, it's going to be a cliche, but knowledge is power. it's, It's quite useful. Again, I think it would be much more useful, you know, for a left to sort of say, hey, wait a minute, that idea makes no sense. You know, and, and you don't need to be thinking this way rather than simply embracing the kind of mythology of, like, you know, the way Code Pink does. That's You know, they, just like this. Inven- well, this invention that somehow for them uh, or that moment is the Saudis are puppets of the United States and are controlled by by Americans, first by the firms than by, you know, uh, various uh, administrations, etc., because they can't possibly have agency. They're either, they're either witting or unwitting puppets of the United States. And that, you know, uh, uh, Fred Halliday, God bless him, uh, uh, scholar, activist, student of the revolutions in the Persian Gulf back in the 70s, and he knew every revolutionary. You know, Halliday was one of the first pr- people to try to disabuse The left of these ideas of treating the Saudis as, you know, some uh, as basically puppets or agents of the United States. But uh, uh, I don't know. I think it's I think that's still a kind of common, you know, understanding uh, 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 in our world. And And it's a problem.
0: That was a conversation with Robert Vitalis, the author of Oilcraft, the myths of scarcity and security that haunt U.S. energy policy. Thank you so much to uh, Robert for being on the show today. This has been the 77th edition of Free City Radio. I want to uh, thank a professor I have right now at Concordia University, Wilson Jacob, who um, uh, actually signed the book Oil Craft. Uh, Free City Radio uh, shares two new episodes a week on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Uh, I produce the program here in Montreal. I'm Stefan Christoph, community activist, student, and artist. Um, you can email me anytime at stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. Thanks for being with us, and I'll finish the broadcast this week with a solo oud piece from a great musician and composer and friend, Sam Shalabi. Take care. Talk to you soon.